Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Sojourn. As Edward said earlier, if this is your first time here, we're thankful that God brought you to gather with us. We hope this is a community and a family that you can find yourself being a part of. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, please come and say something after the service. We'd love to uh, get to know you a little bit and introduce myself to you in person as well. So just glad to be able to worship together this morning. Uh, Edward, thanks so much for your words, man. And man, if you guys don't know this, we have a great staff team. It's been awesome having Edward on staff now the last few weeks and Emily. Uh, it's been fun. We're having a good time together and just grateful for what God's doing uh, in and through our team here at Sojourn. So we're going to be in the scriptures as we are every week during this time. If you need a copy of the Bible, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a couple of guys bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning. Uh, and know that that's a gift to you. If you don't actually own a Bible, please take that with you. Uh, we have those for you intentionally so that you can have God's Word, not just this morning, uh, but throughout the week as well. Uh, so as we begin our time, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in His Word today. Father, the heavens declare the, Your glory. They proclaim Your glory. The sky above proclaims Your handiwork. And so, Father, what that means is, is that your creation preaches. And so I just pray this morning that as I open up your word for us, as I preach your word this morning, that it would be in line with what your creation is already saying. That you are worthy of all praise. That you are a glorious God. And that we can know you. That's an amazing truth, an amazing reality. And I pray this morning as we talk about a particular topic, something that I think a lot of us probably struggle with, that what we would remember in the midst of it is the hope we have because the God of all creation knows us and we can know you. And so I pray that you'd encourage our hearts this morning, that you would lift us up from a place, maybe places of despair, of distress, of difficulty. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as a community as we listen to your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would work in and through this time to help us to encourage others as well. Lord, help us in the midst of our hurriedness in life to slow down and to see the good things that you give us in the midst of all that's going on in our lives. And so I just pray that you'd work through this time, that it'd be honoring to you, pleasing to you, glorifying to you, and as your creation preaches your glory, that that would be what's on display this morning as we open up your word. And so we give this time to you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just mention something real quick before we jump in. Uh, we started doing this last week. There's a little uh, half-page insert in your bulletin that's just for you to take sermon notes. I uh, just want to encourage you to be attentive as the word is preached, just believing that God uses his preached word, not just for uh, the sake of information transfer so that you can learn more information, but for transformation, that God would use that. And so as you take notes, just for you to be able to go back throughout the week and look over those, and then in a community to be able to dialogue about those as well. So just uh, want to point that out to you again as we jump in this morning. My son, Owen, uh, my oldest son, uh, turned seven in just about a week, a little over a week he turned seven. And to say that he's excited about that is pretty much a huge understatement. He asks us probably at least once a day, if not multiple times a day, or makes the statement, I can't wait until my birthday. He talks about it all the time. I can't wait for it. He's excited to celebrate. He's excited to get some presents. And really, he's just excited to be seven. Some of his friends are already seven. He's like, man, I'm going to get there. I'm going to arrive too at seven. I can't wait to get to seven. And if you know Owen, he's a pretty eager kid as it is. He's eager about his birthday. He can't wait for that. He can't wait for baseball season to start, which finally started for him. He can't wait for the professional baseball season to start so he can watch the Nats play again. He can't wait until whatever the thing is that he wants to happen actually happens. And I love that about him. I love that he's so eager about so many different things. But man, waiting is not something that any of us are particularly good at, is it? I think we all struggle in different parts of life with waiting. We grow impatient waiting in line to get our coffee. We grow impatient waiting for the light to turn green. We grow impatient waiting for our food to arrive. We grow impatient waiting for whatever it is that we're waiting for. And in a culture that promotes and encourages a hurried life, waiting and patience and perseverance is difficult 
and I would say even at times derided as being a complete waste of your time if you're waiting. We see things like activity equaling progress. Movement provides meeting. And waiting as well, it's just, it's just waiting. It's just waiting. Nothing's happening. And I think oftentimes we become lost in our waiting. We don't know what to do with ourselves when we have to wait. Our culture, our hurried culture, and our hurried lives don't have much space for waiting. And that's just with the little stuff. But what about when it comes to serious waiting? Waiting for a circumstance to change in your life, whether it's your health or a relationship or your job or with your children. Waiting for something to change within you. Maybe you deal with depression or anxiety or just those sin struggles that seem to always be present. Or waiting for God to do something, anything. It's in those moments that we are once again confronted with what we believe about God. Does He care? Does He give a rip about my life? Is He good? Is He faithful? Can He actually do something? Is He present? Will He do something? And living hurried lives makes this kind of waiting extremely difficult because we're so used to immediate change. We're used to things happening at the snap of our fingers. We get frustrated over the little things we have to wait for, like I said, even just waiting in line for something. But when something significant comes into your life or is absent from your life, it becomes difficult to wait. We crave that and we're sold on that in our culture. But... What if it's in the waiting that we're actually experiencing more of who God is? What if it's in the waiting that we're actually experiencing more of what he has for us? What if, if if waiting is part of the process of actually growing to become more like Jesus? In our hurried, busy lives, we can often and easily miss this. Because so many of us want to take control. Or we miss it because we don't slow down long enough to see what God is doing in the midst of the mundane or the mess. Last week we started a new sermon series called A Hurried Life. And we're spending six weeks addressing through God's word, through the Psalms, one of the biggest cultural idols that so many of us seem to struggle with, whether we're followers of Christ or aren't followers of Christ. And so today, we're going to talk about the practice of waiting. And my hope is, is that God allows and God uses this time in your life, and even in my life as well, He has already, as I've been studying it this week, of seeing that waiting isn't wasted time. Waiting isn't wasted time but in fact is a gift from the Lord. If we will but take it and embrace it, believing that God is good and faithful, and that reality will give us hope. That in that reality that we will have hope, again, no matter where you find yourself in your journey with God. And so let's open up God's word and may he bless the preaching of his word this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 130. We've already heard it read a few times this morning, which I hope, if anything, just gives you your heart and your mind, some time to marinate on this a little bit more because we're going to dive into it a little deeper now. So Psalm 130, we're going to read all eight verses and we're going to jump in. This is what the psalmist writes, and this is for us this morning. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We're going to break this sermon down into four points. Pleading, perspective, perseverance, and proclamation. Pleading, perspective, perseverance, 
and proclamation. And as we'll see, this is really a progression through this psalm in movements through each of these points that really build on one another. So let's jump into our first point, pleading. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Can I just read this again for us? Verses 1 and 2 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And there's so much emotion in this psalm. He says, out of the depths. And the depths are not just our despair. This is literally the actual deep waters of chaos, the sea of troubles that we are tossed to and fro in. He's in the midst of difficulty. It's from the deep places of his heart he cries out to God. This is a a deep, guttural cry. This is a heart-level heartache. He's crying out to God. And what is he crying out for? He's crying out that God would give him mercy. Mercy is the relieving of our distress. The relieving of our distress, whatever that happens to be. Crying out that God would relieve this distress in his life. And that's what makes waiting so difficult. Because it's difficult because most of the time, most often, when we're going through some kind of trial and tribulation, that's when we feel this way. God, would you help me out? There's some want or need that's not being met, some circumstance that we are in that we desire to change or be different. And it's in those moments of waiting for something to happen that can be so difficult, so painful. We find ourselves in a predicament or situation of some sort and we come to the place of realizing that we cannot truly change it. There may be lots of things we could try to do, but at at its core, base level, foundational level, we come to the realization that we cannot truly change it. We long for a spouse, but can't make that happen. We long for for children, but we can't make that happen. We long for a job, but we can't make that happen. We long for healing, whether that be emotionally or physically or spiritually, but we can't make that happen. We long for slander to stop and our reputation to be restored, but we can't make that happen. We long for our marriage to be healed, We can't make that happen. We long for someone to just apologize to us. But we can't make that happen. And all of those things are good desires. All of those things are good desires. God's word, those those are good things that we should desire. And again, that makes the pain all the more real when it doesn't seem to be happening. It's in those moments where our culture's solutions to our situations, whatever they happen to be, whatever they tell us will work for us to help us through these difficulties and these trials to try and take control of those situations, all of those solutions prove themselves to be empty. Because in the end, self-help is no answer to the depths of our distress. Verses 1 and 2 remind me of the beginning of Psalm 13. In Psalm 13, the psalmist says, he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 13, like verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 130, we see a pleading with the Lord. Pleading. This isn't just a a quick prayer. This isn't just throwing something up to God. This is a desperate cry, a pleading that God would do something. It's soul-stirring. It's a seeking of the Lord in a hope that He will hear and heal. He will listen and love us by changing whatever it is that we want Him to change. I've said this before, but I think it's important to say again, this morning because either we oftentimes don't believe it to be true or we've been taught to the contrary of this. God is a safe place and person for you to process your emotions with. 
God is a safe place and person for you to process your emotions with. And we see that all throughout the Psalms. We see it in Psalm 130. We see it in Psalm 13. We see it all throughout this book of prayers and songs to God and about Him, that He is a safe place and person for you to process your emotions with. And I say that to you because I need to say it to myself because so often I don't believe it or I haven't believed it. I've thought that I need to bring my theology before the Lord. God, I know you're good. I know you're faithful. I know you have everything in control. So I need to act like I really believe that to be the case when I come before you. But you know what? Sometimes I don't believe it. Maybe you don't either. Man, God wants to hear that. He wants you to come before him and acknowledge the fact that, God, I'm wrestling. I'm struggling. I don't know if I believe that you're real or that you're good or that you do care. But you can come to your Father and you can talk to Him, with Him, about that. Because when you do, it's in those moments that there's some sweet, sweet realities where God meets you there. See, this is not a call to have a relationship that's stoic and cold and emotionless and distant with God. It's a call to have a real and intimate and personal relationship with the living God. And so in our waiting and longing, verses 1 and 2 teach us that we can and should plead to God for mercy, whatever the situation we find ourselves in, that the God of the universe wants you to cry out to him. He cares for you. Mercy is a relieving of our distress. But what we have to realize and what the psalmist realizes is that our greatest distress is what separates us relationally from God. And that leads to our next point, perspective. I'm sure most of us have seen the pictures of someone holding up the Leaning Tower of Pisa with their arms or or holding the Washington Monument in the palm of your hand or picking someone up with your index finger and thumb or crushing their heads. Maybe some of you have taken those pictures before. What's the deal with that, right? It's about perspective. Through the lens of the camera, it looks as if that gigantic object is on the same plane as you and that you're the same size as whatever that object happens to be. From our vantage point, it appears to be that way. From a distance, it looks like the Washington Monument can fit in the palm of your hand. And if you close one eye or take a photo the right way, just with your hand in just the right place, it looks like that. But the reality is, when you get up close to it, it towers over you. If you stand at the corner of the Washington Monument and look up, it's 555 feet taller than you. And what from a distance appeared to be small, inconsequential, when you get up close in person, all of a sudden it's huge and it's right in front of your face. And that's kind of what's going on here. As the psalmist is pleading with the Lord, as he's pleading for mercy, as he's pleading for God to bring rescue and redemption to his life, he comes face to face with a key reality. He doesn't deserve to be heard by God. He isn't entitled to an answer or response. He doesn't have a right to make a demand on holy God. Nothing about him warrants God's favor or kindness or mercy or love. How is it that I can even come to God like this? And so he asks this question in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? At the heart of this question is who am I and who is God? Left to myself, I'm a sinner. I am tainted by sin. I'm rebellious against God and my thoughts and my actions. And who is God? He's holy and righteous. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's magnificent. High and lifted up, transcendent. God, if you mark out and keep track of all that a person has said and done that is not in line with your will and for your glory, who can stand? And the simple answer is no one. No one. There is no one that is righteous. No one that's seeking God on their own, Romans 3 tells us. And Sojourn, here's something that we cannot miss in this psalm, even as we think about waiting in our own life. This psalm should end at verse 3. It should end. There should be no verses 4 through 8. Because we could cry out for mercy to the living God, but we don't deserve it. 
God would be completely and totally justified in not extending grace or mercy to anyone because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and our sin separates us from him. But this psalm has a but in it. It's the best, the greatest conjunction in the entire Bible. Every time you see that word when you're reading Scripture, slow down. Make sure you understand what you just read and what you're about to read. It says, when I have the right perspective and think about who can stand before holy God on their own, the answer is no one but with the Lord there is forgiveness. With the Lord there is forgiveness. With God there is forgiveness. This is insane. If we really understand who God is and who we are, this is amazing news. With God, the God of all the universe, there is forgiveness of your sin and rebellion, of your glory stealing and your self-focus of trying to be God instead of trusting in God. But how is this kind of forgiveness possible? From the psalmist's standpoint, he's resting in faith in what he knows to be true about God. God has declared to his people, through his word, over and over again about who he is, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to thousands upon thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin and rebellion. In faith, he believes this to be true. He recognizes in this moment he has no righteousness of his own, but he is trusting in a foreign righteousness. He's trusting in a a provided righteousness that the righteous God would declare him to be righteous even though he knows he has no righteousness on his own. When we say righteousness, we're just talking about having a right relationship with God, being able to stand in right relationship with him, being holy and pure, None of us have that on our own. So the psalmist is looking forward to that, but we here and now in 2017 can look back and see how this is actually possible. Because see, our iniquity, our sin, our rebellion against God, our turning away from him, all of us are born into the world with that, has to be dealt with. God cannot simply overlook it Or he would not be perfect, he would not be holy, he would not be just. But we know, and we read this this week in our community Bible reading in the book of Romans, we know the amazing truth from the end of Romans 4 and beginning of Romans 5. Let me just read it over you this morning. It says this, it, meaning faith, it will be counted to us as righteousness who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, that we could be declared innocent before God. Then he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, check this out, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the amazing thing about this. It's available to anyone. There are no prerequisites to this. There are no qualifications for you to receive this peace with God. In fact, the only qualification you have is that you're unqualified. And you come to recognize that. That you're desperate for grace. You're desperate for mercy. It's an absolutely amazing truth, amazing reality that you and I can, we can, by grace, through faith, in Christ, have access to the living God, that we can boldly approach his throne of grace in time of need and cry out for mercy. But this begs the question, in the midst of a sermon on waiting on the Lord, what does that have to do with waiting on the Lord? Well, in this moment, What's happening with the psalmist is that it provides perspective. Our greatest need is met in Christ. In Christ, we have received more mercy than is imaginable, more mercy than is comprehensible. And everything else pales in comparison. It puts all other waiting, all other longing in perspective. Because see, all of our suffering, whatever it happens to be, is a direct effect of a broken world. It might be because of our sin, 
And it might be because sin has tainted all of creation. So no matter the cause, hope fades if the Lord is not loving. Hope fades if the Lord is not redeeming. But our God is loving. And our God is a redeemer. And so hope can remain. See, the psalmist is amazed at this reality and he, it gives him peace and it leads him to worship in the midst of the depths he finds himself in, the despair that he's experiencing. He says, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Fear here means reverence of the Lord and it implies relationship. God, that I can know you and be known by you, that I can be in awe of who, who you are. It's a recognition in this moment that that I'm waiting on you, God. You. That you're actually the Lord of all creation and I'm not. But I'm known and loved by you. Man, do we recognize, do we dwell on how much we have been forgiven and what that means? See, we don't just get salvation to be saved from sin, to be saved from hell. No, salvation brings us to know and be known by the living God. Salvation is a means to that end, that we get to be in relationship with him, and we can cry out for mercy. And so we see this pleading that leads this psalmist, and hopefully us, to some perspective, and then leads to our third point. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Perseverance. Perseverance. Pleading perspective and now perseverance. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, after he said all this, he says, I wait for the Lord. He declares that. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The reflection that the psalmist has on the reality that God is a God of redemption who has met his greatest need enables him to wait. Because I am forgiven, because I know that my Redeemer lives, because I know that God has lavished His unfailing love on me, I can wait. I don't need to run. I don't need to hide. I can stand because He has raised me from the grave and He has seated me in the heavenly places. But when you think about waiting, what comes to mind for you? When we think about waiting, maybe one of the worst places or times of waiting is waiting in the doctor's office. I remember when Amy was pregnant with Owen that we would go to the doctor's office and I would often go with her because this is all new to me and so I'm listening to all this stuff, trying to learn stuff. And we would, there'd be times where we would wait for 45 minutes or more past our appointment time. And there'd be times even in the midst of that where we would wait for that long and then they'd come out and say, actually your appointment's been canceled because the doctor has to go deliver a baby, which is a good thing, but disappointing for us. We're waiting there for these things to happen. I mean, waiting in the doctor's office, you're unsure of when you'll actually be called back to be seen. And so what do you do? You find yourself in this monotonous, mindless moment. You start reading magazine articles that you could care less about. <laughs> and you're watching daytime TV, trying to keep up with the closed captioning and figuring out what's happening on Ellen this morning, right? I mean, you just... You're waiting with this mindlessness going on. You're checking your phone again to see if anything, anybody's posted anything interesting on Facebook again or Instagram again from the last five minutes that you looked. You're just waiting. You're unsure. You don't know when something's going to change or happen. But is that what's going on here? Is that what we're called to when we talk about waiting? This kind of monotonous mindlessness. No. Biblical waiting is active waiting. It's active waiting. It's patience. It's perseverance. Perseverance is about continuing on. It's about moving forward. It's like the productive pause we talked about last Sunday. It isn't mindlessness. It's mindfulness. It's filling your mind up with what is true. Not the lies of the enemy. Not the wanderings of a wayward heart. See, biblical waiting flows out of being forgiven. It flows out of being redeemed because we don't deserve it. It testifies to the character of our God and that's what gives us hope in the midst of our waiting. And so we have to come back to those truths over and over again in order to persevere. But waiting even produces that within us. 
We read in Romans 5 already a little bit, but let me read on. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Paul there says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope. Hope in His Word, the psalmist says. Not because of a change in circumstance, but because God is with us and He is faithful to His plans and His purposes and His people. And He has shown you that through Christ. See, biblical waiting and perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in the same direction, not because we can control the outcome of what lies ahead, but because we trust in the God who is in control. And that's what makes waiting hard. Waiting is hard because we want to be able to control a desired outcome. We want something to change. Waiting is hard and painful at times extremely, excruciatingly painful at times. And so I don't want you to hear in any of this that I'm being flippant or that God's word is flippant about your waiting. There's been moments in my life where we've had to wait on the Lord to do something. When we're told that we can't get pregnant, there's a 1% chance that we're going to be able to get pregnant on our own. We're, We're having to wait on the Lord. God, this is a good desire you've given to us, but we can't really do anything about this. There's been moments of waiting for the Lord to do something in the midst of ministry and through difficulty and trial. And so when you hear this call to wait, it's not just kind of like, hey, just wait. Like, suck it up, buttercup. Right? I mean, sometimes we could hear that that way, but I don't want you to hear that that way this morning. Not at all. It's okay to acknowledge, to make sure that you understand that this is not easy. It's not something that's meant to be easy. But I also, in the midst of your waiting, whatever it is that you're waiting on or when you will be waiting on something, I also don't want you to to not realize that your waiting is not a waste of time. I don't want you to believe that your waiting is a waste of time, and I don't want you to believe that your waiting is a punishment from God. Because as we see all throughout God's Word, waiting is something God uses often to mold us and shape us to become more like Jesus. But the problem is, is that waiting is not valued. Waiting is not prized in our culture. And again, it's seen as a waste of time. And so what we find ourselves with is that our own hearts, as one pastor says, our own hearts and our cultural assumptions steer us to impatience or taking shortcuts. This is why we're talking about this in this Hurried Life series. Because waiting requires us, causes us to slow down, to be patient, to persevere most of the time in the midst of difficulty and trial. But it's often when when we are waiting that God is doing the most work in here more than out here. There's an old joke, maybe you've heard it before if you've been around the church for a little while. People say something, hey, don't pray for patience. Right, don't pray for that. You talk about wanting to grow in patience, don't pray for patience because you know what's going to happen. God's going to give you opportunity for patience. That's dangerous prayer to pray. But as one pastor said, I never realized that that joke presumes that one can actually follow Jesus without it. It presumes in the fact that you can actually follow Jesus without patience. See, trials and waiting oftentimes seem like interruptions in our lives, but what would happen if we actually saw them as gifts to us from God? Gifts to us to point out something that might be going on in our hearts, something we might be believing about God or about ourselves that isn't actually true. 
It's like the dog barking when an intruder comes into your house. The dog, that interruption is annoying and frustrating, but it's alerting you to something way more dangerous and significant. What if we actually saw the waiting, saw the pause, saw the call to perseverance as a gift from God to address your heart? Because God is after first and foremost your heart. This pastor goes on to say, without patience, love is distorted. Faith is not possible. Hope fails. Impatience violates love, hurries us into walking by sight, and usurps God by putting the fulfillment of our hope into our own hands. This is what happened with Abraham. If you're familiar with the story of Abraham, God called Abraham and his wife to leave their home, to go to a foreign land, and he promised him, he said, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to make you the father of many nations. But Abraham has no children. And so he goes in faith, believing God, calling him to this place to go. He has the promise, but he has to wait. And he has to wait. And he has to wait. And then he and his wife decide, well, maybe we misunderstood something about what God said. We, we know the promise. God said he's going to bless us with his child, so maybe we need to take something into our own hands. And so they come up with this crazy idea and seek to have a child through other means by Abraham sleeping with another woman. And a child is born, but God's not pleased by that because that's not what God promised Abraham in that moment. See, oftentimes we are too quick to fix, too quick to respond instead of waiting on the Lord to do a redeeming work in us and in others. We live hurried lives in a hurried culture that says waiting is a waste. The clock is ticking. But you know what? King Jesus doesn't operate on our time and our schedules. Another pastor says clock time teaches us to assert, to get moving, to make something happen. But Jesus' time calls us to listen and receive, pay attention and learn from God. God promised something to Abraham, but in that, he had to wait for 40 years. For 40 years, he had to wait for God to bring about the fulfillment of his promise according to his time and his will. 40 years. Most of us in this room are not 40 years old. So when someone says you might have to wait on something for 40 years, we have a hard time thinking about waiting 40 minutes, 40 hours, 40 weeks, 40 years. But here's something we need to wrap our hearts and minds around that the author of Psalm 130 gets at as he reflects on the nature and character of God. Waiting on God is not waiting without God. It's often the moments of waiting that we have the sweetest communion with him because we are utterly dependent and childlike. See, we can often think silence from God is a lack of love or care from God, but church, listen, silence doesn't mean absence. In our hurriedness and desire for immediacy, what we find ourselves doing is we tend to talk more than listen, move more than stop. But what if your waiting is the point? What if in our waiting we actually get to spend more time slowing down and communing with the living God in prayer and relationship, actively waiting? If that's what's happening, then your waiting is never a waste. And this is where God's word is so crucial. God's word the scriptures are a, a healing balm for your heart and your soul, not because they change your circumstance. Not because they change whatever it is that you're waiting on, but because as you read God's word, you're reminded of what is true. In the fog of disillusionment, when you don't know which way is up or down, left or right, forward or backward, God's word reminds you of what is true. It reminds you of who is true in the hope you have in him. See, waiting like this forces us to stop and face a very real reality that we are not in control, but we can know who is. This is active waiting. It's perseverance. It's alert. It's longing and resting in the midst of it. 
I love what verse 6 says. Look at verse 6 again. It says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Why does the psalmist say this? A watchman is standing guard over the city and he is waiting, can't wait for the sun to come up over the horizon. He can't wait for the sun to come up because when the sun comes up, it means several things. It means darkness is gone. It means danger is gone. And it means he gets to go home and rest. And so he's longing for this sun to come up. He's longing for the morning. And the same thing is true for us because church, one day the sun of righteousness will rise up over all darkness. He will rise up over all of the dying that's happening in the world. And if you're in Christ because of the reality of the gospel truth in verses 3 through 4, you will walk on beaches of hope and peace. You will be in the new city with the God of all creation where there'll be no more sin, no more death, no more darkness, no more despair, no more disease, and no more waiting. And it will be a time to rest. Right now in your life, it may seem like the night will never end. It may seem endless, but my friend, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because mourning is coming. This leads to our final movement and point, proclamation. After all of this, where does the psalmist go? He says in verses 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So far... The psalmist has been very individually focused. But now he's moving out into the community. He's moving out. Everything he's been saying and reflecting on and praying through flows out to the community after it's worked through his own heart and his own life. And he wants others to know. He wants others to be encouraged. He wants others to be changed. He's saying, listen up. People of God, listen up. We have hope. We can wait. No matter what you're going through, no matter what's going on, let me tell you, let me remind you of what is true with our God. And don't lose that, the significance of that. It's our God. With our God, there is steadfast, faithful, unending, lavish love. With our God, in Him, there is plentiful redemption. And I love that. Plentiful. It's unending. There are storehouses of redemption for you. And the effects of sin, that's what redemption is provided for. It begins with the individual for forgiveness and reconciliation, but it goes all the way to restoration and renewal of all of God's creation that's been marred by sin. He will redeem his people from all their iniquities. God will bring shalom once again, perfect peace and harmony. But here's the interesting part about all this and about this psalm. The depths are as deep at the end of the psalm as they are at the beginning. There's no solution provided in this psalm immediately. It doesn't say that his circumstances change in this moment. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you feel disappointed or disillusioned with God in the midst of your waiting. Maybe it's been years. But that's what this community is here for. To why we need one another. Because if you're not struggling now, you will at some point struggle. But we're not called to live life as a bunch of disconnected individuals. We're called to be a family together. We need brothers and sisters around us. I need you in my life. I need you to remind me to hold on, to hold fast. That even if the situation or circumstance that I find myself waiting on never changes, that you can fight for peace, that I can fight for peace because our hope is in the God who does the undeserving and an unimaginable, the God who saves and forgives sinners like you and me, who redeems and restores what the locusts have destroyed. See, in the midst of our waiting, the gospel is always the answer to apply and on which to meditate because it gives us hope that the darkness does not win the day. 
Jesus died the most painful death. He took on the scorn and, of man and the wrath of God so that this pain that you're experiencing now wouldn't be the end. He came to redeem it. He came to give it hope. He came to give you life now and forever. You know, we read something pretty amazing this week in community Bible reading. If you don't know what that is, we've been reading through the Word together since the start of the year. We have this reading plan, this journal, and right now we're in the book of Romans. And I just want to read it to you, something that we read this week. I want to proclaim this over you this morning in hopes that you would take it up, in hopes that you might slow down in this hurry world and be encouraged by it, believe it to be true, and then encourage others with it. Just put your pencil down for a second and listen to this. Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those who He called, He also justified. And those who He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the midst of our frenetic, hurried lives, in the midst of a culture that does not value waiting and sees it as a complete waste of your time, we need to remember that. We need to come back to that truth over and over again. Because church, your greatest enemy has been defeated. The power of sin has gone. It's been overcome. Jesus has and will redeem you fully, transform you completely, and lift your burden indefinitely. So friend, are you waiting on redemption? Plentiful redemption has come. It will come. Embrace it. Embrace Him. Hold on. Hold fast. Plead and persevere, but hold on. God is at work, and he will finish what he began. Behold, he is making all things new. As we come to the table this morning, we're going to come 
to participate in a meal of perseverance, a meal of hope, of proclamation and declaration. Jesus instituted this meal with his first disciples and he told them, and he now tells us this, when we eat the bread, it's a picture of his body broken for us. When we drink the cup, it's a picture of his blood shed for us and he tells us to eat and drink it until he comes again. So that means that every time we eat this bread, every time we drink this cup, we proclaim our hope that Jesus has come and will come again. And so as you come forward this morning to eat and drink, come with hopeful expectation. With whatever it is that you're going through, no matter what your circumstance might be, come waiting for your blessed hope, the return of our King and our Lord. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning to, to eat the bread and drink the cup because it doesn't mean anything for you. Your hope isn't in that yet. We want your hope to be in Jesus. So would you take Jesus this morning? If you recognize that you've been trying to find your hope in something else, but you've come to realize that it isn't found in anything else, would you place your hope and your faith in Christ who came to save you and redeem you? And if you have questions about what that means, please come talk to me afterwards or any of our other leaders. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about that and help you understand what it means to know Christ and follow him. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or the tables in the back, tear off a piece of bread, take one of the small cups to drink. And what Jesus has done for you to give you hope will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to wait actively. I pray that you would help us to persevere. I pray, Father, that you would help us to know your power and your presence in our lives. That even if right now you're calling us to wait, we don't wait without you. Lord, help us to feel that, to, to slow down, to experience more of you. And help us to help one another with this. To be able to encourage, to remind, to build up, to even carry one another when necessary. Father, we pray that you would do a work in us so that we might display to the world around us that our hope is in Christ and Him alone. And at the very same time, we pray, come Lord Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.